Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, my latest presentation on lived experience, epochy, and phenomenological reduction. Uh, there seems to be some ambiguity uh, within the academic community, especially the novice researchers and even the newer faculty about what constitutes lived experience uh, as it relates to phenomenology. So as you will see in this presentation, lived experience has a different nuance, it has a different meaning than the everyday meaning of experience. So with that, let me go to the next slide. What is lived experience? Um, lived experience, uh, as I just said, has a nuanced meaning in phenomenology as opposed to its common usage. So when you think of lived experience, you generally think of any experience that you're having in everyday life um, and as you witness um, events, as you have experiences with people, as you have encounters, yes, these are all experiences, but in phenomenology, especially when we are trying to do research uh, and looking at a different phenomena, uh, we are thinking of lived experience in a slightly different context. All right, so let's look at uh, an understanding of these nuances is key to doing phenomenological research. So let me, let me just say this at the outset that unless you have a very good understanding of what lived experience means as it relates to phenomenological research, you're going to end up down a different rabbit hole. Um, and you're going to end up doing uh, other forms of research, but not phenomenology. So please uh, take the time to, uh, to watch this presentation in its entirety in a, in, in, so you can get a feel for uh, uh, the meaning and significance um, and the application of lived experience to phenomenological research. So lived experience is always off or about something in our everyday living. So uh, when you think of any experience, yes, it is about something and it is in our everyday life world. But lived experience, especially as it relates to phenomenology, has a special meaning. Um, that something in phenomenology is the phenomena that we are researching. So when you're having an experience in everyday life, you may or may, or may not be really thinking about something. You may not be thinking about a phenomena. You're just having an experience um, uh, like you're walking down the street, you're talking to strangers, you're taking a train ride, you're sitting with uh, uh, a fellow passenger in an airplane, or you're walking down the mall. These are all experiences that you're having in everyday life. But when you start researching something, you are especially narrowing it down to a phenomena. And uh, so at the heart of phenomena, of the phenomena is its essence. And you'll hear the expression ADOS or IDOS, uh, doesn't matter how you pronounce it, but it, it means the, the structure of consciousness, the essential attributes of something. Okay, what is it that makes something what it is, is known as the IDOS, okay? Um, in the next slide, you'll see that this expression 
has its roots in the work of Edmund Husserl. And uh, you've all heard of Edmund Husserl. He's the father of phenomenology and the creator of transcendental phenomenology. Edmund Husserl's phenomenology was a pure phenomenology. It was always about the world and openness to the world. For him, the, the phenomena was outside, okay? Um, it was always there and it was pure, it was transcendental. He was not concerned about the human existence or about the ontology as Heidegger was. So, and as you might know, Heidegger was the disciple of Husserl. And then later they had a falling apart and Heidegger went and uh, you know, wrote and did some research on other forms of phenomenology. And uh, you, you'll hear the expression ontological phenomenology uh, connected with the work of Martin Heidegger. So while Husserl, the first bullet, talks about human consciousness, um, for Heidegger, it was more important to look at human existence. Ontology is the study of being. It's the nature of being, how to be in the world, how to show up in the world. And Husserl, or sorry, Heidegger believed that you cannot be researching and you cannot be talking about phenomenology without bringing yourself into that world. So you cannot separate that, that phenomenology that Husserl talked about, which is always pure and, and, and idealistic, uh, you really have to also bring your being into, into that mix. Um, and then of course, you will also hear about the work of Wilhelm Delphi. These are all uh, German philosophers. And what I've tried to do is to not engage your mind with the German words. Uh, they, they're complex words, and I don't want to muddy up this presentation with a lot of the German words. You can certainly read that in their works. But for Delphi, to show life as it is, that is what we strive for. So what he strove for is to show life as it is occurring, as it is unfolding. To describe life, that was his goal. He wanted to make life visible in its unfathomable depths and unfathomable nexus. You'll hear the expression nexus as it relates to Willem Delphi. A nexus is a connection or series of connections linking two or more things. So all this, these are Germanic origins of lived experience, but I want you to understand these uh, different philosophers' work uh, as it relates to phenomenology and especially with how they saw how they perceived lived experience. Let's go to the next slide. So what is eidos or eidos? Eidos is an expression that is often used to describe the essential attributes or essence of an entity or a phenomena. So what are the essential attributes? So let me give you an example. What is it that makes a table a table, okay? So, you know, one might think, okay, so a table has a tabletop, it has legs, 
typically four legs, right? Right. So what is it that makes a table different from some other artifact like a chair? Okay. So now that gets your mind thinking about the essential attributes of a table. So the essential attributes of a table, while some of those attributes are present in the chair, but what makes a chair a chair? And what makes a chair different from a table? So you might think, okay, so the chair, even though the chair has four legs and the chair has a flat top, the seat, but the chair also has a back. So now you see where I'm going? So there's a difference, the nuances between um, a table and a chair, are what makes for the phenomena. So when you're looking at the phenomena of a table, you're looking at it from the standpoint of essential attributes that make all tables what they are. Now, some tables may be very ornate, some tables may be very rustic, some tables are decorative, some tables are very simple, but tables in general will have certain ADOS, certain essential attributes. So it's important when you're researching to understand what are the essential attributes of a phenomena, okay? In order to understand the lived experience of a phenomena, the researcher must first attempt to grasp its ADOS, okay, the essential attributes before making a deep dive into its nuances and complexity. So when you set out to do research, right, uh, you have a phenomena that you have in mind, call it employee engagement, call it uh, abuse, call it anger, uh, and if you're researching people who are infected with HIV or somebody with chronic lower back pain, whatever the case may be, or unwed mothers even, you're looking at a phenomena for what it is, all right? So you're looking at the pure aspect of phenomena, the essential attributes as Husserl did. But are you really going to be able to understand the phenomena totally in, a, in its purest form? Is it even possible to understand the phenomena? And if you look at the next bullet point, uh, transcendental or pure, which according to Husserl was, I stand above the world, which has now become for me in a peculiar sense a phenomena. So he sets himself differently from the world. Okay, so the world is out there and he's looking at the world and he's looking at all the phenomena that appear, that occur in the world in a very pure, in a very transcendental uh, form. But for Heidegger, if you look at the next point, for Heidegger, it becomes ontological. The idols moves from, or the essential attributes move from an understanding of the essentials of a phenomenon. What makes a table a table? What makes a chair a chair? What makes a human being a human being? What makes a man or a woman or a transgender individual what they are? Um, and he introduces this notion of the nature of being and the mode of being. So when you bring in into the mix, the nature of being and the mode of being, you're bringing in an, an ontological perspective 
in phenomenology. And you'll hear a lot of um, work done by Heidegger on ontology, on an ontological understanding of phenomena, uh, and you can certainly do, do your own readings on that. Uh, this preview is just to get, get your feet wet into thinking about some of these concepts. All right, let's move to the next slide, the phenomena. So what is this thing that we talk about uh, when we say the phenomena? What is its meaning and purpose? The objective in phenomenology is to understand the true essence of a phenomenon. So when you set out to do research, especially phenomenological research, you're trying to get to the true essence, the, the core of something. Um, and rather than seeking only the essence, only the essential attributes of a phenomena, the research is also, the researcher is also looking for what gives or what's given as it relates to a phenomena in its originary, originary is an expression for original and primordial is antique, which goes way back into time, historical forms. So let's first again, take a look at that. The objective phenomenology is to understand the true essence of phenomena, that's very generic. But when you're looking at only the essence, you're only getting those aspects of a phenomena which are essential. But you are, are not truly getting at what the phenomena is saying to you, what gives or what's given as it relates to the originary and primordial forms. So what you're trying to do, you're making an attempt to go back into the original meaning of something, into the primordial meaning of something, all right? The phenomena is always before you. This is a, um, a confusion that often occurs uh, in, in new phenomenologists that are attempting to uh, research using that methodology is that the phenomena is hidden. You do not know where it is. Well, folks, the phenomena is not hidden. And yet, it does not show itself to you or does not give itself to you so readily. Think of it as being obscured by layers and layers of understanding, interpretation, your biases, your theoretical frameworks, and your preconceived notions. So think of it as a, as a container, as a jar, or as a vase that has been sitting in the attic for years and years and years, and suddenly, um, a, a young child, okay, goes, runs up to the attic and brings this face down. And over the years, over 10, 20, 30 years, it's been sitting in the attic and covered with all this dust and cobwebs and everything else. And at first glance, at first blush, you don't know what it is, right? You know that there is something there. You know it's a, it's, it's a phenomenon, it's an object. But in order to see the object, in order for the object to show itself to you, you really have to remove some of those layers of understanding your own biases, your own interpretations, or your own theoretical frames and perceived notions. So you might just look at that and say, oh, it's this or it's that. So in phenomenology, um, our goal 
as researchers is to allow something to reveal itself, to show itself, to disclose itself to us. In order for, for that, that object or that phenomenon to reveal itself to us, what we need to do is to brush off, as it were, things that obscure the phenomenon. All right, we call this the epochy uh, or bracketing, as you will hear the expression in, um, in phenomenology, but also in qualitative research. What is it that you're doing in bracketing, you're putting into parentheses, you're putting into brackets, your biases, your preconceived notions, your understanding, your interpretations, or your theoretical frameworks in order to do good research. Uh, so you realize that as a researcher, you're bringing in your own uh, understanding of something, but in order to get to the heart of the phenomena, get to the essence of a phenomena, you really have to brush off. You really have to uh, engage in the epochy or bracketing, um, and knowing fully well that paradoxically, on the one hand, you are bracketing, you're putting aside these biases, these interpretations. On the other hand, you're also fully aware that it is not humanly possible to do that. It's going to impinge on your research. And so there's a dialectical tension between keeping that aside and allowing yourself to come into the research or, or allowing all of that to surface in the research. You also hear an expression, nomenon and phenomenon. It's kind of like, it's not really the opposite of each other, but nomenon is the difference. Uh, and it was an expression that was uh, coined by Immanuel Kant. Um, and uh, it's synonymous with things as they appear in themselves, a very idealistic notion. So the things in themselves, what is it that appears the way it was meant to be in its purest, in its most uncorrupted form, independent of any sensation or perception. So what, so the phenomena, when you look at from a standpoint of phenomenology, you cannot experience the phenomena. You cannot have the phenomena show itself to you unless you bring in your sensation, your senses and your perception. Because all humans acquire knowledge through their senses, through their perceptions, through their understandings. So in that sense, humans can cannot ever know nomina, okay? So I just wanted to put it in there because you're gonna, you're gonna hear about that um, in, the, in the work of uh, Immanuel Kant and uh, also otherwise in research. So it's important to make that distinction between nomenon and phenomena. In phenomenology, we are researching phenomena, okay? All right, so enough about that. Uh, let's talk about epochy and bracketing. So there are two distinct steps when you're doing data analysis in phenomenology. 
The first is epochy or bracketing. You're setting aside, you're putting in parentheses, your biases, understandings, your preconceived notions, etc. Um, and the second step, as you will see later in this presentation, is phenomenological reduction proper. So think of that as, uh, as the, your final step in trying to understand the deepest meaning of the phenomena. So epochian bracketing, again, I mentioned this before, are interchangeable expressions. They're both analogous. Uh, means setting aside or putting into parentheses. I already talked about that in the previous uh, slide. For Husserl, it was a technique for allowing penetration to the underlying grounds of our knowledge by thinking away conventional, including scientific, theoretical assumptions and frameworks. So for Husserl, it's a very pure way of looking at something by um, using this technique of bracketing. So bracketing was first introduced by Husserl. The goal in bracketing is not to urge the researcher's mind of all knowledge, okay? Preconceived notions, theoretical frameworks, etc. And here's the paradox there. So on the one hand, you're setting aside all this uh, in brackets for the purpose of your research. But on the other hand, you know that such an endeavor is not humanly possible. So it's a conscious effort on the part of the researcher to set that aside, knowing fully well that all of that or some of that is definitely going to creep into the research. It is not to engage polemically in what constitutes the structure of phenomena. You hear the expression polemics. Uh, you're not getting into disputes, you're not getting into arguments. So when you look at something, you don't first get into the spin of, oh, I know exactly what I'm what this participant is saying in the research. Oh, I know what this phenomena is. All right. And you start to get into an argumentative mode, or you're, 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 you get into a dispute about that. So it your goal, your endeavor in phenomenological research is not to engage polemically in what constitutes the structures of a phenomena. It is to remain as open as possible and allowing the givenness of the phenomena to, to reveal itself, to allowing the phenomena to, to surface, to talk to you, as opposed to you going after something. So there are different forms of epochy or reduction, uh, or again, again a, a simple expression for uh, bracketing. The first one is heuristic epochy reduction. What is heuristic epochy reduction? It is the awakening of wonder, okay? You need to be able to awaken wonder in, in yourself to be able to allow the phenomena to reveal itself to you or in order to gain a better understanding of what it is that you're really researching. And how do you awaken wonder? Is it something like a switch that you turn off and on? No. What you're doing is though, you're bracketing your taken for granted attitudes and preconceived notions about something. So you already have some preconceived notions, some taken for granted attitudes. So what you're doing in this first form of reduction 
uh, or bracketing is keeping those taken for granted notions aside. You're putting them into parentheses. And please know that wonder is not to be confused with just simple curiosity, a fascination, or an admiration. Oh, so I'm really curious about this, or I'm fascinated by this, or I admire this. That is not wonder as, as, as was intended in phenomenology. Wonder is the unwilled willingness to meet what is utterly strange in what is most familiar. Now, this seems like a mouthful. Just let's read this again. It is the unwilled willingness to you have a willingness when you're doing research. Okay. Why is the willingness unwilled? So even though you're making a conscious effort to do something, all right, you are not going into something that is totally unfamiliar to you. So you are remaining in the realm of the familiar. Okay. And you're trying to meet what is utterly strange in that. So you may be looking at a phenomena, you may, may be uh, looking at what it is that you're researching. And on the one hand, you're so intrigued, so full of wonder about that. And, and you lose sight of the fact that you are in a sense allowing something to emerge. So you're looking for the strange in the familiar. And, and here I just want to talk about uh, people have a tendency or researchers have a tendency to think that when we talk about a phenomenon, it has to be something totally extraordinary. It has to be something totally outlandish, out of this world. No, it's not. Even a very basic experience, everyday life experience can become a phenomenon for you. And that is what uh, is meant here by the unwilled willingness to meet what is utterly strange in what is most familiar. So you may have, you may have been walking down a path for years and years and years, and you make nothing of it because it become a force of habit. You take a walk in that park. And then suddenly one day you encounter something very strange, very novel in that experience. And it, and it grabs your attention, it grabs your mind, and you want to think deeply about it. Something happened that awakened a sense of wonder in you. All right. So, so, so just, and, and, and when you're looking at this, you will think of various uh, episodes where you may have had, you know, every day you're going and doing the same thing over and over and over again. And yet one day it just becomes so wondrous. You, you are full of, full of joy, full of excitement uh, about it. And you, you want to take that further. It's keeping you awake at night. And that's what you go after in research. The hermeneutic epochy reduction, by contrast, is awakening openness. So unless you awaken a sense of openness, you're not going to be able to dig deep into the essence of the phenomena. And openness can be, can be accomplished in, in a number of different ways, but here we're talking about bracketing all 
interpretation and openly reflecting on and reflexively dealing with and explicating assumptions. So really what you're doing is you're bracketing your interpretation because so you're looking at something and you're not immediately jumping to the conclusion about, hey, this is what it is and I know everything about it. There's nothing really new here. Uh, I've been experiencing it all my life. Well, guess what? Stop. For the purpose of research, you have to bracket your interpretations and openly reflect on what you're seeing. And reflexively, you hear the expression reflexively or ref the researcher reflexivity in uh, phenomenological research and also generally speaking in qualitative research. Uh, and we'll, we, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I just wanted to share uh, what reflexivity means. It bringing, it's bringing your own consciousness and you're also your subconscious uh, well, how is the researcher or, or how is the research impacting you what is it doing to you what is it saying to you and what are some of the, the, the thoughts that are emerging in you in phenomenology the researcher reflexivity is an extremely important element and um, you are required as a phenomenologist. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of phenomenologies are written in the first person, not the entire study, but uh, typically your introduction, uh, your uh, analysis, your interpretation chapter, your final chapter about discussion findings. There's, you'll see a lot of the active voice of the researcher. So, so when a reader is looking at a study, the reader wants to know what it is that you as a researcher did. So the first person becomes a, an important aspect of, the, of, of phenomenological research. Um, the experiential epoch reduction is awakening concreteness and living meaning. So how do you do that? You do that by bracketing all theory all theoretical frameworks and belief and disbelief in what is real or unreal, okay? Uh, and the, these might appear to be complex um, terms and expressions, but really when you start to do, if, and especially if you're embarking on phenomenological research, you really have to understand that while it is, it is so, esoteric, it is so uh, nimble, it is so discursive, all right? There is also a structure, and this is what brings the structure uh, and, and techniques into phenomenology, which is otherwise, or, or can be otherwise considered to be a very loose, very abstract way of researching something. So by bracketing your theories, your theoretical frameworks, your understandings and beliefs and disbeliefs, in what is real or unreal. So you're not going after facticity, okay? You're not saying, oh, this is what I'm researching. This is exactly the way I thought it was. You suspend that. You put them in brackets. And finally, the methodological epochy reduction. You're awakening novelty and innovative approaches. This is a very, very critical piece here. So I want you to pay attention to that. You're bracketing conventional techniques and force of habit methods to approach research phenomena, and instead opening the mind to newness and novelty. 
if you're doing phenomenological research, you're really embarking on this massive project, which at, at times can appear totally disjointed, totally rambling and discursive. Uh, and, uh, and if you're just going up to something which, which, which has no novelty, uh, really, where is the wonder going to come from? And where is the curiosity that's going to come from? Where is the newness and novelty going to come from? So you, when something strikes you as a phenomenon and you want to research it, you're really going after uh, it in phenomenology because it has kept you awake at night. This is something that you made your life's mission. And you will see that folks that go and do phenomenological studies, uh, they, they, it's, it's so, so the, the, the whole process of going after a phenomenon may have started years and years ago. It was in your subconscious mind. Uh, and then suddenly it rises to the level of research and you start to look at it and you, you start your PhD program. But even after you finish your PhD or your MPhil or whatever you're doing, um, the whole process continues. It becomes, it grabs your attention for the rest of your life in a manner of speaking. All right. You want to make, make it your life's purpose. You may want to make it your life's mission. All right. Um, doing phenomenology is a poetizing endeavor. I just wanted to share this with you because you, what do I mean by a poetizing endeavor? By poetizing endeavor, I don't mean that you're writing poetry but you have to have the aesthetic capacity. You have to be able to uh, become so one with something, all right, and yet be able to keep yourself aside from that. So you have to be able to, for instance, you know, uh, Van Men, and these are, these are all uh, expressions and, 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 and uh, statements that I've taken from Van Menen's uh, book, um, researching lived experience and also the phenomenology of practice. Uh, daffodils may appear differently to a horticulturalist than they do to a poet. So, you know, take for example, a horticulturalist, a person that takes care, care of flowers, takes care of the nurseries and all that. This person, he or she is looking at these flowers every day. It becomes very commonplace for them. Uh, there's nothing very spectacular. This is a job. I have to do it. I have to water them, I have to nurture them, I have to feed them uh, the fertilizer or whatever so that they look beautiful and they grow. But when a poet passes through that nursery and looks at a rose or looks at a daffodil, that daffodil, that flower, speaks to the poet in a very distinct way way, uh, in a very aesthetic way. And the poet is able to understand and, and, and imagine so many things about the flower, okay, and be able to write it in a very poetic way. Right? So you, you really have to have a capacity as a phenomenologist to be a bit of a poet, uh, not to write poetry, but to understand that this is a poetizing, this is, it, 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 for instance, um, you know, people always, always say, okay, so if that were true, uh, what about, what is the outcome of a piece of poetry? 
you know. Uh, and this, this question will often come in your own research. Your faculty might say, okay, so you want to spend uh, X number of years doing this research on this particular phenomenon. All right, now that you're coming to the end of the journey, what did you find? What did you discover? Well, in phenomenology, it's not about the spectacular discoveries that you're going to be making. And, and, a, and a, when a poet is writing poetry, the whole process of writing poetry is its outcome. All right, so there isn't something that has to spring forth from the poetry to make it spectacular. Um, the entire process, the whole journey, so your journey of doing phenomenology is the outcome, okay? So there are no, like for instance, if you're doing quantitative research or you were doing other forms of research, uh, case analysis or uh, grounded theory or ethnography, there are certain distinct outcomes. Please think of phenomenology as not running after an outcome. You're not out to refute, hypothesize, taxonomize, validate, define, or describe a phenomenon. You're allowing the phenomenon to reveal itself in its most originary, its most original and primordial forms. It is a method of abstemious reflection on the basic structures of lived experience. So what is abstemious? Abstemious means abstaining from. So you're allowing your mind to reflect on the basic structures of the lived experience as you're living the experience around a phenomenon. By abstaining from or keeping aside your own experiences of it, your own biases, your preconceived notions that I've been talking about. So in a manner of speaking, you're bracketing all of that stuff in order to get to the basic structures of lived experience. By abstemious, again, we mean that reflecting on experience must be as much as possible open and abstain from theoretical, polemical, suppositional, and emotional intoxication. So you don't get so intoxicated, so consumed by what you already know about the phenomena that you don't allow the phenomena to reveal itself in its most basic structural form. It is neither deductive nor inductive. So, you know, you know, phenomenology is an inductive approach. So you're really going from specific cases or specific uh, phenomena into some general, generalities. So uh, the generalities are not the forms of generalities that you might have in deductive approaches, which are, which are more quantitative. Um, where you're applying it to a general population and you're building all these grand theories that can be um, part of the study. It is rather reductive. And reductive really means to reduce or to make smaller. So when you're looking at something, and remember I was talking to you about that vase, which had all these layers of dust over the last 10 years or 20 years. And suddenly you see that. Um, and how do you, how do you get to the, the phenomena? How do you get to be able to see the vase? You have to reduce or make smaller. 
or in other words, you have to brush off uh, the layers and layers that are collected over it. So just remember that it is a reductive approach, okay? Uh, and, and again, these are the, uh, uh, the thoughts of Max Van Manen, uh, of just a brilliant contemporary uh, phenomenologist and wonderful author. I would highly recommend that you read his work. And at the end of this uh, presentation, I will provide you that, um, that slide where you can certainly look at the, the title of the book. Uh, phenomenological reduction proper. So you remember I was talking about uh, step one is the epochy of bracketing. So if, this is a process you're engaging in, in trying to understand the phenomena at its deepest level. Okay, you're going through a process of distillation, right? So in step one of the analysis, what you did was that you bracketed your own assumptions as you're looking at the transcriptions, uh, as you're looking at the, at the, at the, at the interviews, the semi-structured interviews. Um, so after having done the bracketing, you're now into step two of the data analysis and interpretation. Uh, and here that you look at four different ways of doing it, the eidetic reduction, the eros or whatness, which involves grasping some essential insights and attributes for understanding the meaning of the phenomena. And, and let's take the example of a secret. Okay, so keeping a secret is not the same as lying because in lying there is a form of deception, but secrecy does not necessarily involve deception. Keeping a secret is not the same as practicing privacy because privacy is essentially a non-relational experience while secrets always involve others from whom we keep secrets. So here the, the, the author is trying, again, this is also from Van Manen's work. The author is trying to make a distinction. So when you're looking at secrecy as a phenomenon, you really have to be able to understand the whatness, the basic structures of secrecy. In order to understand the basic structures of secrecy, you really have to be able to differentiate it from other stuff like deception, okay? And, uh, and practicing the privacy. So, so, so when you look at the phenomena from many different facets, you will begin to understand that it's important for you to be able to understand its basic structures or whatness as we call it, um, so, so, and th this is the philosophy of Husserl, really, the eidos or whatness. The ontological reduction, now here we are bringing in the work of Heidegger. It talks about the ways of being, which involves an understanding the ontic. The ontic is an expression for ontological, the nature of being, the meaning of something, as in the nature of being or mode of being. So remember I was talking about Husserl as saying is the phenomenon outside, so that you are not part of that. Your, your, um, your being uh, is not part of that phenomenon. And Heidegger disagreed with Husserl, and he said, how can you look at a phenomenon without, while separating yourself totally from it? Because you're living that phenomenon. You're living it as part of your life world, all right? Um, 
so ways of being involves understanding the ontic ontological meaning of something as in the nature of being or mode of being in the world the ethical reduction alterity or otherness it involves going beyond the eidetic reduction of hustle and the ontological reduction of heidegger so here we are talking about the uh, another form of reduction where your understanding that there are certain central essential attributes of phenomena and there's also the nature of being ontologically that are part of the phenomena so one might question what lies beyond that being or what lies beyond the basic structures so in this form of alterity or otherness you are trying to transcend in a manner of speaking you're going trying to make that leap beyond what is the basic structure and beyond what is the basic meaning of of being with that phenomena then the finally the radical reduction which is self-givenness it involves focusing on the way that a phenomena gives itself as itself while applying epochy bracketing to all senses of subjectivity or agency it addresses how a phenomena gives itself so in the previous forms we're talking about <clears throat> what is this phenomena the whatness what is this phenomena what is it like to be or what is it like to live with this phenomena right um, so in radical reduction we also now start understanding the how how does this phenomena give itself so again Husserl is talking about the whatness what is this phenomena what is this phenomena in its purest most idealized forms the essential attributes the eidos heidegger is talking about the nature of being what is it like to be what is it like to experience this phenomena on a day-to-day basis so let me give you an example <clears throat> if you're if you're working on researching uh chronic lower back pain all right so what is chronic lower back pain that's easy to describe right what is it like to suffer from chronic lower back pain so you're talking to patients who suffer from chronic lower back pain uh you're essentially asking them what is it like to be in that state what is it like to be in that constant agony or the discomfort and what does it do to your life how does it throw how do you create upheaval in your life your livelihood your relationships your happiness uh, what are the frustrations you go through so that would be the nature of being but when you're talking about radical reduction you're talking about self-giveness involves focusing on the way that a phenomena gives itself as itself how how does this happen so now you're bringing a brand new element into it so if you just focused on the whatness and the ontological attributes without understanding how something happens you're not looking at the whole picture so this is i'm, I'm just giving you the time and this is i'm doing it simplistically because it's not possible in this uh, presentation to be able to go into depth about this i encourage you to uh, read the work of pat menon and uh, you'll have you'll be really excited the phenomenology of practice is a wonderful work so let's go to the next slide 
Okay, and this is the end of our presentation. Uh, and if you'd like to receive a PowerPoint presentation, this exact presentation, please feel free to email me, uh, a-b-e-h-a-l at email.fielding.edu. That's my um, academic email address. Uh, feel free to, to send me a message and I'll be, do, do, I'll be able to send you this PowerPoint presentation. I'm also going to make a note to put this email address once I upload this presentation and this uh, audio and video onto YouTube in my YouTube channel. As you want, you all know that I have a YouTube channel on research and, and qualitative studies, uh, including phenomenology. Um, I will make sure that I put this email there so you can see it there as well. But I'm also available, just so you guys know, to guide and coach anyone on the use of hermeneutic phenomenology and IPA. IPA is interpretative phenomenological analysis. And uh, you'll see in my YouTube channel um, that I have uh, a, a presentation there. It's called the use of IPA uh, in data analysis and interpretation. IPA was um, an approach that was uh, designed or developed by researchers, health psychologists, such as Jonathan Flowers and Larkin in UK at the University of Birkbeck. Uh, wonderful work and uh, I've taken that approach forward and done, did some studies with that and also guide students on the use of IPA. IPA is very broadly used, very generally used in uh, researching anything related to health, but it can be also applied to other novel phenomena. My, my phenomena uh, that I was researching for my doctorate was negative capability which is the capacity to stay in mysteries, doubts, and uncertainty without the irritable reaching out to fact and reason. Um, and, and I would also like to finally uh, acknowledge and attribute this work to the thinking and contributions of Max Van Manen, uh, just a brilliant author, uh, written um, a rudimentary text, researching lived experience, um, which I would highly recommend, but for the more advanced researcher, probably Phenomenology of Practice, which is, uh, I've cited that book there, uh, would be an excellent piece of work. He talks about all the other, about 30 or 40 different phenomenologists, um, both classical and uh, contemporary, who have done uh, phenomenological studies on anything that you can think of, including uh, feminism and deconstruction and uh, sociological phenomenology, et cetera, et cetera. So with that, uh, I want to thank you. Uh, this has been mostly a uh, informative uh, lecture, uh, but uh, if you want to go deeper into something uh, and you want to look at examples, you can certainly look at all the literature that's out there. You can uh, get in touch with me and I will be happy to take this uh, forward with you in a meaningful way. So again, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Uh, please feel free to go to my uh, YouTube channel uh, and uh, uh, visit my uh, other presentations there. Uh, take care and have a good day.